You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. I'm jumping into uh, Acts chapter 2. I'll start at verse 22 and read to 41. This is Peter speaking. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it, for David says concerning him, And Peter quotes the psalm. I saw the Lord always before me, for he was at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul in hades, nor will your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb and is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, that Jesus, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. As Greg uh, comes up this morning, I'm just going to pray for him before he gives us the sermon today. Lord God, thank you for Pastor Greg and... um, Uh, Every Sunday, God, may we, as Bryce was um, challenging us with, just be encouraging to one another to lift up uh, Greg as he has uh, prepared and prayed and poured over your word for this moment to share with us today, Lord. So would our 
uh, ears and hearts just be attentive, uh, not so much to what, what this man is saying to us, but uh, God, to what your Holy Spirit is speaking to us through your word and through Greg. And so we, we're here for you, God, and we thank you for all these things. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Blair. Well, again, good morning, everybody. Glad that you guys made it through the snow this morning. Um, yeah, I didn't realize I was following up. When I asked Blair to read this, I didn't realize I was following up Peter's sermon. I don't know if I can follow that, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> it's like um, when I was in a band and the opening act was better than us. It was, it was embarrassing. Um, but whatever, I'll do my best. Um, Anyways, as as, uh, as you guys know, and I think Blair mentioned uh, before he started reading that, we've been, through September, we've been discussing the church, and um, that we're the church, but also we've been discussing the aspects of church that we feel significant, according to the Word of God, um, what the Word of God says, and, and therefore how we attempt to go about pursuing those things and creating spaces and opportunities to flourish in them. And And, and I just want to mention quickly that one subject that we're not talking about in September is missions, and that's because we're actually having a day of missions in October, so that'll be later. So don't worry, missions is important to us too, we just won't be discussing that in September, um, because this is the last Sunday of September, and we don't have time. Uh, but uh, today we're going to be discussing the importance of what we call the sacraments. And uh, if you don't know what sacraments are, for us, uh, the sacraments are baptism, communion, and of course, the Enneagram. No, I'm just kidding about the last one. Uh, we're not a New Age cult. But uh, who are we? That's a good question, right? Uh, the other day, as I was as I was driving my uh, seven-year-old son to school, he quipped up with concern from the back seat, and he said, "Dad, a lot of the kids in my class don't know what being a Christian means, even though some of them call themselves one." So he's concerned about that. So, you know, in the hopes of helping him in his recess conversations on faith, uh, I said, well, you could tell them that being a Christian simply means someone who follows Jesus. And then he asked, am I a Christian? And I said, well, do you follow Jesus? And he responded, well, yeah, especially since I want to see what heaven's like. Uh, <laughs> I, I love I love the, the, the faith and innocence of a, of a child, right? Keep stepping on this cord. Um, and that's definitely one of the perks of following Jesus, for sure. And there, but there's a whole lot more perks to following Jesus, right? Uh, there's, you know, the, the gift of undeserved grace, which includes forgiveness of sins. There's new life in communion with God. We're given identity, peace, truth. We're given certain hope and eternal life and, and, the, and the promise of God. We're given community, right? This church. We're given joy, even in the midst of sorrow. We're given purpose, right? We're given freedom. We're given comfort in the midst of, of even persecution and hardships, right? We're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We're given all things pertaining to life and death. The list goes on and on and on. There, there are many perks to following Jesus. But on that end... And like most children often do, my, my, my son presented to me and now us this morning a simple yet challenging question. What does it what does it really mean to be Christian? How do we how do we step into it and, and live it out? 
more specifically then, what, is it, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? And you could, you could find many definitions everywhere, all throughout the Internet. You, can, you could probably find whatever you want to hear in books and on the Internet, right? You know, but, but what does it mean to follow Jesus? Is it, is it simply labeling yourself as one, like some of the kids in, in my son's class were, even though they didn't know what it meant? Is it simply just like putting up our hands during an altar call and praying a prayer of salvation? Or is, or is there more to it? Is it, is, it, is it just about going to church and reading your Bible? Is it a striving to obey his teachings while just being good and nice to everyone? You know, is it, is, is it about serving the poor? Is it about social justice? Is it just about, about a free ticket to heaven as we, as we bide our time in this life? Is it whatever we, we feel or want it to be? Is it a political conservatism? Is it voting for Trump? No. Is it about living our best life now? Right? What does it mean to truly follow Jesus? Well, I got an idea. Let's ask Jesus. Luke 9, 20 to 25, Jesus says to his disciples, well, first he asked them a question. He says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're God's Messiah. And then he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. And then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus says to them again, as the Messiah, I will die in order to be raised up, in order to conquer sin, conquer the grave. And then he says to them, but if you want to follow me, you must also die in order to be raised up. So let's not sugarcoat Jesus' words. He's telling us that following him begins with death. Following him begins with death, and not a physical death, right? Thankfully, Jesus did that part for us at the cross as our perfect sacrifice. But to follow him requires us to lay down our lives, to count as loss all we thought we held gain, and, and then pick up our cross. And so, again, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's calling us to die. But not just any death, right? He's calling us to join him in his death as we pick up our cross, right? So that we can be forgiven of our sin through what he's done and receive as well the benefits of his resurrection. Like, like the song we sang earlier says, this is not a death, this is life. And the song, The Wonderful Cross, also says it beautifully. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die to find that I might truly live. I love that line. So good. But of course, the hard part about all of this is that there's a cost, right? There's a cost we even have to weigh daily to humbly follow Jesus or, or, or to go our own way, 
or to hold on to our things in our pride, right? We either, we either seek the kingdom or we chase after the world. The late German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he calls this costly grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I highly recommend. He writes this, he says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Such a good quote. And, you know, as we talked about last week when we were talking about prayer, right, to, to, to follow Jesus is, a, is surrendering our lives to him. Right? And this can seem costly. But yet it's in doing so that we gain true life. As this says in James, when we humble ourselves before him, that's when he exalts us. And this is absolutely countercultural to the world that we live in. To follow someone, to, to lay down our lives, to submit to an authority figure, to the world and to our pride, that's the definition of losing your life, right? Submit to no one, the world's telling us. Submit to no one. Take charge of your own life. Pursue your own version of happiness and comfort and, and pleasure. The, the only way to gain life is, is to take that fruit off the tree and eat it yourself. And even though the evidence increasingly suggests that our culture's obsession with leadership, with rising above, with projecting that perfect Insta image, with stocking up on moments of pleasure, trying to balance the pursuit of happiness through both pleasure and success, and elevating the self, all of those things, it, it, the evidence is showing that it isn't working. Yet this, this self-seeking autonomy is still the ultimate pursuit of and way of life for most, including within the church too. We've inherited that. And, and we keep doing it, and we keep trying to, striving for this thing in our own strength, like it's miraculously going to work all of a sudden, except that things are getting worse. Uh, about this philosopher, Gilles Lipovetsky writes, We increasingly see hyper-individualistic passions for comfort and pleasure and existential comfort, the demand for agreeable sensations, for a high-quality ambiance and environment. Hence, the individual appears more and more opened up and mobile fluid and socially independent. But this volatility signifies much more a destabilization of the self than a triumphant affirmation of a subject endowed with self-mastery. Witness the rising, of, rising tide of psychosomatic symptoms and obsessive-compulsive behavior, depression, anxiety, and suicide attempts, not to mention the growing sense of inadequacy and self-deprecation. 
The more socially mobile the individual is, the more we witness signs of exhaustion and subjective breakdowns. The more freely and intensely people wish to live, the more we hear them saying how difficult life can be. The more freely and intensely people wish to live, the more we hear them saying how difficult life can be. In other words, as we attempt to gain the whole world for ourselves, we're losing it. Mentally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. To follow Jesus and to to deny ourselves and, and pick up our cross, while at first glance it might seem like a drag, it might, it might seem like the cost of giving up our lives and, and, and our autonomy and our idols it isn't, isn't worth it. It might seem offensive even. It, it might seem like it's bad news, but it's really, actually, really good news. It's a glorious and, and miraculous opportunity. It's an ind- invitation to be set free from, from the slavery of sin, to be set free from the course of this world. To, to be set free from, from this, our simple desire to, to do it all, all ourselves, from, from our, that burden that, that, it, that it, the burdens that it places on us of anxiety and, and guilt and exhaustion and our pride, that need to constantly chase after happiness through pleasure and the weight of sin. And so, yes, it's costly because it calls us to deny everything and all the idols and things and securities that, that we once held dear. And it grates at, at our pride and our self-centered nature to admit that we need a savior and to surrender our lives to another person. But yet it's when we do that we actually find real freedom. We find grace. We find God. We find resurrection life. We find that Jesus already paid the ultimate price for us at the cross so that we can be satisfied and made new. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9 sums all of this up perfectly. And it says this, and it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So again, to, to sum up, what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? To come and die. To surrender. To turn and place our faith and trust solely in the one who died and accomplished it all for us. So that we can really, truly live. And this isn't a burden. 
right? It's a gift from God that he's calling us into, that he's calling us to receive. Then the next question then is, how do we, how do we receive this grace? How do we respond to, to this, this grace that he's calling us into? What must we do? And this is the exact same question that those listening to Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost asked that Blair read before, or Blair read earlier. Right When Peter explained to the crowd that, that the disciples weren't drunk, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that this was the, the fulfillment of prophecy made possible only through the promised Messiah, proving to them the fact that the one they killed at the cross, the one that had come bringing miracles and signs and wonders, was in fact the Messiah. But, as Peter explained, even though they, they sought to kill him, and they used evil people to kill him, God had preordained that moment to be the victory over sin and death. And that because Jesus willingly went to the cross and conquered the grave, he now sits at the right hand of God, freely offering his grace and his spirit to all who believe in his name. And then it says that the crowd listening to Peter, upon hearing what they did to Jesus, but more importantly, what Jesus did for them, says they were cut to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. And so they asked Peter, what must we do? What must we do? And so this is his response and what happened next. Acts 2, starting at verse 38, it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. So what must we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. At this moment, Peter's being obedient to what Jesus had instructed his disciples to do. In Matthew 28, 19, which I read earlier during the dedication, Jesus tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, then, we can see here that that according to Jesus, baptism is an important step for someone who's been repented and been called by God to follow Jesus as his disciple. Someone that's, that's coming to die and deny themselves and pick up their cross. So, I want to talk, talk a little bit about what baptism is exactly and, you know, why we need to get dunked in the water, but... First of all, I just want to say let's be thankful that it is water and not um, snow. This morning I walked out of my house and I was like, I'll shovel the walk quickly. So I went to grab my shovel. As I was walking over there, a big pile of snow fell off my roof (coughs) right on top of me. And I screamed so loud that my kids ran to the door. They heard me in the house. Are you okay, Dad? And I was just covered in snow. I was going down my back. You know, it it was awesome. So I had a Baptism of winter, I guess, this morning. 
Um, so let's be thankful that it's, that's, that's not what baptism is, but uh, it is being dunked into water. So why, why do we do that? Why does Jesus call us to do that? Um, well, first of all, again, it's something that's commanded, instituted, and exemplified by Jesus Christ. He was baptized, and so he shows us that exemplifies that and it's and it's given to us to to visibly represent seal and apply to believers the benefits of his new covenant um on that end i want to make it clear that baptism on its own is not an act that will that that will save us um you know if you can get baptized but if it's you know if you don't repent and believe in jesus christ it's just like having a bath i guess um but it is a public expression and a sign for those who've already or simultaneously uh, repented and believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So it's clearly part, though, of, of, of the process of becoming a disciple and, and receiving the grace of God. And therefore, it's the responsibility of everyone who believes to both baptize and be baptized. Mark 16:16 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Let's believe in Jesus. As our Lord and Savior. So, what happens during baptism? Let's talk about that. Um, I'm going to be reading lots of verses here. So, what happens during baptism? Well, first of all, baptism signifies Christ's forgiveness and the washing away of sin. Of course, I mentioned like a bath before. So it's like it's like being cleaned. It's like being washed, right? And 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 that's such a perfect image. And and it's amazing, you know. Uh, as, as we're washed away, as we're forgiven and, and our sin is washed away, you know, our guilt, our, our shame, our sin from the past, present, and future, it's, it's all removed by the grace of Christ. Acts 2.38 says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so that's what happens during baptism, um, number two, it signifies that the belief, it signi- baptism signifies the believer identifying themselves as a child of God, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So our sin is washed away, right? And then we put on Christ. Galatians 3, 26, 27 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And as we put on the righteousness of Christ, that's, that's, that's when we're made holy and, and, and we have, get access to, to God. We're reconciled with God. Number, number three, the third point here, uh, baptism symbolizes a, a believer being united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So as we've been discussing, following Jesus starts with death. right? And, and the act of being placed under the water signifies that death and burial of, of our old sinful self. It's, it's buried. It's, it's in the grave. We join Christ in his death and what it accomplished. And then the act of being raised up out of the water signifies the new life that is being raised up with Christ into his resurrection life. And Romans 6, 3-5 says it like this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so we see that imagery in the baptism. United with him in death and then raised up out of the water, united with him in resurrection. 
Fourth, baptism symbolizes and sometimes precedes or coincides with the seal and baptism of the Holy Spirit in those who believe. Right? Peter said, repent to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Of course, the Holy Spirit in us ushers us into purposeful and sanctifying life in the kingdom of God. It unifies us and commits all believers into the body of Christ and also seals us as heirs to the promise of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So hopefully you guys are following along, but therefore water baptism done in the name of the, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is both a means of grace from God as we enter into the new covenant and is also an act of, of faithful obedience for all those who have confessed and believed in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Right? It's a call to, to come and die so that we may live. It's also, therefore, a commitment to the believer to, to lay down their life to follow Jesus, to a commitment to live as his disciple, to commit themselves to the growth and unity of the body of Christ, to, to proclaim his gospel to others, and, and, to, and to live one's new life according to his word through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. And so with that being said, obviously baptism isn't something that we're able to do all the time at our church. We don't even have a baptismal tank, though we've we found out another church is willing to lend us theirs whenever we need it, which is awesome. But um, it is something, baptism is something that, that's important to us at the gates because it's important and mandated for us by Jesus in our call to follow him and lay down our lives for him. So when we can, we like to organize baptismal services every now and again um, to give anyone who desires to be baptized the opportunity to do that. And so if you believe and, and follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you'd like to, and you haven't been baptized, let us know. If you feel God calling you to lay down your life and follow him, awesome. Let us know, and we'll get you baptized. Um, I'm avoiding a Notre Libre quote. It's like wanting to come out. I'll say it anyways. <laughs> I'm a little bit concerned you have not been baptized. Okay? <laughs> anyways. It had to come out. It was like... Argh! But anyways. <laughs> it's significant. It's important. And uh, yeah, if you haven't been, I'm a little bit concerned. And so let's, let's get that done. Uh, Anyways, as you can probably tell, baptism is a one-time event in the life of a Christian. You don't need to keep getting baptized. That's, that's not necessary. But yet, we're forgetful as humans, aren't we? You see that throughout the Bible. They, you know, God does something awesome for them, and then they're like, thanks, God, and then they forget, and then they turn away from God, and bad stuff happens, and then God saves them, and they're like, thanks, God, and then they forget. Like, that's, that's who we are as humans, right? And, and so it's important for us to, to continually be reminded of the gospel that saved us, to be reminded of the new covenant that, that Jesus won for us, that, that we walk in, and to be re- repeatedly brought back to the foot of the cross. Thankfully, then, Jesus also gave us another ordinance or sacrament, which we're to take part in repeatedly as the church. And this, of course, is the Lord's Supper, also known as communion or in some denominations, the Eucharist. And you may have noticed 
if you've been part of this church for a while, that we receive communion just about every Sunday. It's already set up, ready to go here. And we do this because Jesus taught us to and told us to, and, and because it ensures that we're always setting our eyes and heart on him, that we're always coming back to him and what he's done for us, because we need that reminder. We need that, that, that we need to proclaim that in our lives. Matthew 26, 26 to 29, um, it says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that's when the Lord's Supper happened for the first time, and we can see that through the early church and and through church history that, that We've continued to do this, just as Jesus has taught us. And on that end, there there are four main aspects to communion that I just want to remind us of this morning. And the first thing is that there's there's a togetherness or a community, body of Christ aspect to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, it says this, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. So it's not just an individual thing that we're doing. Even if sometimes if we take it as individuals. But, but it's, we, we have to always keep in mind that this is about the body of Christ. That we're receiving together. That, that we are one body. For we all partake of the same loaf. Um, the second thing that I want to remind us of is that communion is for remembering and proclaiming Jesus' sacrifice, his, his death for our sin, and then the hope of resurrection life that comes out of that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. John six fifty three to 54 says, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when we receive communion, we're proclaiming his death until he comes, right? Which means we have that hope that he'll raise us up at the last day as we receive what he's done for us and proclaim that. The third thing is that... Uh, on the same end, that when we receive communion, there, there's also a, a call to examine our hearts, right? Which means to take communion seriously as we, as we receive his grace and are reminded of Jesus' call to join him in his death, to sin and life with God, as we're reminded of our need of a Savior. First uh, Corinthians 11.28 says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread, and drinks of the cup. Right? This doesn't mean you have to be perfect. That's not what it means at all. It means that we have to acknowledge that, that, that we need a Savior. Examine yourself so that we're taking it seriously. Right? It's a reminder that, that communion isn't something we do flippantly as part of the service order. Oh, the sermon's done. Now it's time for communion. Right? No, it's serious. It's, it's holy. It's a call to repentance. And my fourth point, and finally, while Jesus isn't physically present with us, communion is a, is a reminder for us that he's spiritually present. That by 
eating the bread and, and drinking the wine as Christ commanded the disciples, the Holy Spirit brings us not only into salvation, but into fellowship and communion with Christ, who is our salvation. So communion then is, is a reminder and an invitation by Jesus to, to humbly enter into his grace, to enter into his life, to receive his perfect work, and to come into his presence, to commune with him, which is so beautiful. And finally, and, and in conclusion then, because the sacraments of baptism and communion are given to the church by Jesus as visible signs and seals to all who believe and follow him, Again, we also believe that, that they're incredibly important for us as Christians and are called to follow and proclaim the name of Jesus for the glory of God. Because these sacraments are our precious ceremonies of the covenant that, that God uses to bind us to himself and nourish us until we can enjoy fellowship and communion with him in heaven. Because they, they call us to come join Christ in his death so that we can live in the power of his resurrection. And, that, and that's why we want to we create opportunities for us to, to do these things. Why we have baptism and why we invite you to join us together as the body of Christ each and every Sunday to, to receive communion. And on that note, we're going to do that right now, but first I'm going to pray. Lord God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this community. I thank you that we are the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us that, that, that the call to, to follow you is the call to come and die. To join you in your death so that we can live in, the, in resurrection life. Not by anything that we do or what we've done, Lord God, but Jesus, because of what you've done. Because of the cross, because you conquered the grave. And I thank you that you've given us these sacraments to remind us of these things. And that as we take part in them, that, that, that you pour out your grace on us in the midst of them, that you commune with us in the midst of them, Lord. And I pray that as, as we, each and every time that we take part in these sacraments, Lord, that we would take them seriously. That we wouldn't do them flippantly, Lord God. but that we would really know what it means to, to surrender our lives to you so that we can live. Lord, again, I thank you that, that you've given us these, these sacraments to constantly remind us of what you've done, of who you are, and what you've called us into. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.